This morning I want to make sure that we are in the number of churches in our country that are uh, speaking out about the violence related to white supremacy. This summer, I was in Charlottesville, Virginia. The best thing I had on vacation was a bacon, lettuce, and fried tomato sandwich at the drugstore on the Center Mall in Charlottesville, Virginia. A place this summer of such peace and tranquility. And yet then to see yesterday uh, the violence and the death is to see in action the basest and coarsest and most evil things that run in the human heart. And so we speak out, I speak out against that kind of prejudice And the assumption of that kind of privilege. And to do so at the cost of other people's lives is reprehensible. This morning, um, I woke up um, about 5.30 with this on my heart. It was on my heart yesterday and sometimes you wake up in the same place and and then you just kind of watch. Um, I went to get donuts this morning. This is empty. This is not my dozen. And as I went to the donut store, the, the man behind the donut counter, which I would call like the promised land behind the counter, the young man said, uh, are, you, are, you, are you from church? And I said, yes. He got our donuts, and as I was leaving, he said, Would you pray for me while I work? I said, Sure. What is is your name? He said, My name is Cy. I said, Would you write it down on my box? S-A-I. I guess he's from Pakistan or thereabouts. So I said, Sai, may God bless you today as you work. I didn't ask him if he was white enough for a blessing. He was one created to be in the image of God. And he touched every one of our donuts. So, if someone asks you, 
at your church this morning. Did anyone speak out? You say, we all did. Perhaps it is appropriate that we're going to preach from Philippians chapter 2 today. And uh, Darren and I are going to work this uh, out where he reads a bit and then I preach a bit and then he reads a little more and I preach a little more and then he'll read the third section and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll preach some more. I first heard this way of preaching in black churches where the preacher would have a reader and sometimes the reader was uh, a younger person who would be called to be the reader. Darren is much younger than I am and he will be our reader. So Darren, if you would, come read the first four verses of Philippians chapter 2. If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. So the Apostle Paul, we talked about last week, Um, He's in prison in Rome. He's lived a long time. It's probably A.D. 64. If he reads the newspaper, perhaps the craziest person to ever, ever lead a country is the leader of Rome. His name is Nero. Not any rational That any needs to be with an E. Rational, and there needs to be an O. Y'all can figure out what it is. Nero, he was nuts. He will have a time when he lights the garden for his parties by wrapping Christians and setting them on fire. He's not good. But, um, but what really is in Paul's mind are these people in this church back over in Greece. In northern Greece, in a town named for Philip the Great. Alexander the Great's, uh, Philip of Macedon, Alexander the Great's father. 
Because in this church, there are people he loves. And he knows that there's a little ripple of, of discontent. There's a little ripple of discontent. You hear about that at the beginning of chapter 4. About two women who are having a little squabble. Maybe a big squabble. Women can have big squabbles. I've heard people minimize that thing in chapter 4. Oh, the women, they're probably discussing the color in the nursery. Like women only talk about that. They could have been having a knockdown drag out about, you know, serious things. I've been around some steel-belted, radio-ply, four-speed, standard transmission women who could hurt you. Um, So he wants them to live in peace. And he wants to speak against everything that would keep them from being in peace. And from his experience in the life of the church, his experience in the life of the church tells him that it is tempting in the life of the church for someone to want to exert power in the life of the church in such a way that this person rises and other people are subjugated. And that somehow the the church would become the playground for an ego. Not supposed to do that. He, He says very clearly that if you're united with Christ, comforted by his love, having fellowship with the Spirit, then you should be one in spirit and in purpose. That's a big challenge. Because all of us know what it's like to believe that we're right. We've wrestled this through in lots of places. Some people thought that the marriage vow had embedded in it the notion that the husband was always right. And that... Marvin, did you not know that? Okay. Um, Marvin would be good enough if the vow said the husband is sometimes right. Uh, You know, that would be good. Um, Careful. I know. You know where I live. But this notion of being right, being the preacher and being right, being the elder and being right, being whatever you are, and, and that giving you sort of the right to be right. All that's very intoxicating. And there won't be any of us who haven't succumbed to its temptations. But Philip says, uh, but, but Paul says to the Philippians, he says, if you could, you could be better than that. And each of you could look not only to your own interests, it's not, it's not that you don't see your interests, but that you're able to see your interest in the context of the interests of everyone else. 
So the challenge, first of all here, is for us to be able to not only see ourselves, but to see everyone else. There's a very dangerous thing going on now in the development of small children. And I'm afraid of what it's going to lead to. Because the last several times that I've helped a small child into a child's seat, I have seen that they have put on the seat back in front of them a mirror. And it's sort of a mirror that has a little convexity to it. And it, and it shows you the world around you and you're right in the middle of it. Any of you have this mirror in your car? Thank you, McCall's. The, 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 the bad thing about it is that Carrie sits in that seat most of the time. Um, but this is the world that many of us live in. We live in a world when we look in the mirror, we see ourselves in the middle of it and the rest of the world sort of distributed around us. Paul says, let's see if we can live in a different way than that. Where we're not in the center of our own world. of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave. He became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honored him far beyond anyone or anything ever. So that all created beings in heaven and on earth, even those long ago dead and buried, will bow in worship before this Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is the master of all to the glorious honor of God the Father. So so Paul doesn't say, just look around your church and find the most humble person you can find and and use that person as your your guide. He says that as Christians, we have a central core figure who is meant to define our lives by his example. Now... That may sound churchy, but there's no way around it. Any attempt to become a person of power in the life of the church is immediately opposed by the presence of the crucified Christ.
Because this Jesus, in his incarnation, thought about what he could do. It's interesting to think about God thinking about us. God thinking about us, even before the world is made, and saying, what will we do for them? What will we do for these people we make, these people who fall, these people who are in need of a a Savior? How will we save them? There are many layers of this salvation. How will we change their life? Not just how will we deal with their guilt or how will we deal with their future, but how will we deal with the way that they live? And in the conversation, in Holy God, the notion was there that God himself did not put himself in the center of his own mirror. But God himself saw within himself, within his son self, the ability for even holy God to empty himself and be born as a human being. Emptied. That's the strongest word in this text in many ways. Did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself. I I think that Jesus, on the nights that he went to pray, may have just prayed, Lord, these folks, really? Here as the dawn is about to break, Holy Father, help me again to empty myself for them today. Today in Nazareth, today in Capernaum, today in Bethsaida, today in Jerusalem, wherever it is, Lord, align my life, align my priorities, align me so that today I can empty myself maybe your idea is that God, the Lord Christ, could empty himself once and for all and it would be done. And he would live his life, the rest of his life in this world without his, his self ever being tempted to puff up or be self-protective or self-aggrandizing. Okay. That doesn't work for me. And that doesn't work for you. Our ego, our heart, our our flesh is always trying to load our wagon with a sense of importance. A sense of entitlement. Always trying. But Jesus says, Paul says, let this be in you as it was in Christ. I'm just going to jump on the back of the communion service. Y'all can go wherever you want to go. 
But maybe communion at least ought to be a weekly reminder that by this bread, I empty myself. And by this cup, I empty myself. And in this cup and bread, I say, Jesus is Lord today. Knowing that the day will come when I will be with the great gathered multitude who kneel before the Father and say, Jesus is Lord to his praise and his glory. Friends, what I'm getting at is that you should simply keep on doing what you've done from the beginning. When I was living among you, you lived in responsive obedience. Now that I'm separated from you, keep it up. Better yet, redouble your efforts. Be energetic in your life of salvation, reverent and sensitive before God. That energy is God's energy, an energy deep within you. God himself willing and working at what will give him the most pleasure. Do everything readily and cheerfully. No bickering, no second guessing allowed. Go out into the world uncorrupted, a breath of fresh air in this squalid and polluted society. Provide people with a glimpse of good living and of the living God. Carry the light-giving message into the night so that I'll have good cause to be proud of you on the day that Christ returns. You'll be living proof that I didn't go to all this work for nothing. Even if I am executed here and now, I'll rejoice in being an element in the offering of your faith that you make on Christ's altar, a part of your rejoicing. But turnabout is fair play. You must join me in my rejoicing. And whatever you do, whatever you do, do not feel sorry for me. reading a translation that is really helpful it may have helped us in some ways through that text that in the NIV reads continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose God who's working at you when you take the second seat or the third. It's God who's working at you in you when you are able to put 
others above yourselves. It's God who's working in you. When you are in fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ, and that fellowship is so sweet. One of the great challenges we have as a church is always to dig down deep into ourselves, wanting to be known in the community and wanting to be seen in the community and wanting to be loved in the community and have this public persona that says, hey, y'all, come over here. Look at us. And, and sometimes there's this, this sense that you want to beat on your chest and swing across the auditorium on a vine, you know, just to, to show what a great and powerful and mighty bunch you are. But the paradox in the readings we have this morning is that only by being like the self-emptying Christ, only by being like the Christ who suffered even death on the cross, only by looking out for one another and putting our own interests beneath the interests of others, only by that lived out emptying do we become the light that shines in the darkness. It's paradox. You become known by not needing to be known. You become loved in the world by not loving yourself too much. But there may be those who are attracted to the great and fancy scintillating vision of the Christian faith. But there may be others who have a different kind of hunger in their heart. Who are looking for the people who look like Jesus. And are not at the front of the parade. But who are at the back. With the carts and the shovels. So we're called to live to the praise of the glory of God in the only way that brings praise and glory to God. In the likeness of the servant, Jesus. May we be this way. May this be our heart. Let's stand and sing together.